This week on Taiwan Insider, the spy case that's captivating not only Taiwan, but the rest of the world. I'm Andrew Ryan. I'm Natalie So. Let's take a look at the stories on our radar this week. Two Chinese nationals suspected of trying to interfere in next year's presidential election were detained as they were attempting to leave Taiwan. They've now been barred from leaving the country. That's after allegations by a self-proclaimed Chinese spy, Wang Liqiang, who says that the company the two work for is really a front and that they're trying to undermine Taiwan's democracy. The presidential office says the victory of the pro-democracy camp in Hong Kong's recent district council election shows that the people of Hong Kong are determined to pursue freedom and democracy. A spokesperson for the office repeated calls for authorities in Beijing and Hong Kong to accept the will of the people. The Democratic Progressive Party caucus has drawn up a bill that would punish people who interfere in Taiwan's elections. The bill not only lays out punishments for tampering in elections, it also puts forward incentives for spies to turn themselves in. The show must go on. That was the message last weekend at Taiwan's Golden Horse Awards, the most prestigious event for Chinese language films. China's film industry boycotted this year's event, but the show was as glamorous as ever, with Taiwanese films Detention and A Son winning big. And under the radar, but not exactly covered up this week, were Taiwan's belly dancing champions. Taiwan sent an unprecedented 28 contestants to a recent competition in South Korea, and they shimmied their way to 10 gold medals. Let's start with the spy case. A Chinese man named Wang Chang told Australian media that he's a former Chinese spy and that he worked for a company that's disrupting Taiwan's elections. Now you can imagine this was big news in Taiwan and that led to an investigation and a new spy bill. At the Taoyuan airport on Sunday, two Chinese suspects are questioned and are now barred from leaving Taiwan. Self-proclaimed former Chinese spy Wang Chang said that their company has been interfering in Taiwan elections. Wang said he was employed at China Innovation Investment in 2014. The Justice Ministry took China Innovation Investment Executives Xiangxing and Gongqing in for questioning. The DPP proposed an anti-infiltration bill on Monday. Caucus Whip Ker Chenming said, The most important bill of the session is here. It's called the anti-infiltration bill. It offers incentives for spies to come forward. If you turn yourself in and prevent a national security crisis, you may be exempt from punishment. MPP caucus whip Xu Yoming said, As in other countries, the bill requires registration, designates boundaries, punishments, and investigations. That was a reference to the MPP version. The bill's maximum penalty for infiltration is five years in jail. But Kuomintang lawmaker Chen Yiming said that the introduction of the bill was a campaign strategy. It's election time, so you can see the ulterior motives. She said, If we don't pass it in this session, we'll have to start all over in the next session. The anti-infiltration bill will be debated at a public hearing on Thursday and put to a second reading at the legislature on Friday. So who is Chinese defector Wang Liqiang? Is he a former spy or is he a con man? That's the subject of today's Taiwan Explained. In today's Taiwan Explained, I'm going to tell you about self-proclaimed former Chinese spy Wang Li Chang, who made headlines this week. All right, Natalie, we have 60 seconds on the clock. I'm ready. You ready? Yes. Go. 
All right. This past week, Wang Lichang has been featured on major Australian media. He says he's a former Chinese spy who is working to undermine democracy in Hong Kong and Taiwan. He says that in 2014, he began working for this Hong Kong-based company, which was a front for Chinese intelligence activities. He says he helped with the high-profile kidnapping of a Hong Kong bookseller at the shop selling dissident books. Wang says he was also sent to Taiwan to work with media, temples, and a cyber army to help get Han Guiyi elected as Kaohsiung mayor in 2018. That went so well that his next mission was to come back and to help prevent President Tsai Ing-wen from getting re-elected. But instead, Wang went to Australia to be with his family and to seek political asylum. But China has a different story. Chinese authorities say Wang is a fraudster and a fugitive with a fake passport. They say he was convicted of fraud and accused of conning a person out of 4.6 million RMB, but also... Oh! Very nearly. (laughs) You have one more sentence, right? Yes. Um, Well, this is his conviction record, and some people say it only appeared online after the media reports came out. All righty. So how seriously are people taking this case? Well, they are taking it quite seriously. Uh, Taiwan is investigating um, the claims, and they actually um, held two people, the people in charge of that company, um, for questioning this past week for two days. They're released, but they're banned from leaving Taiwan. So I guess the ball is now in Australia's court to decide whether they're going to send him back or to accept him as, uh, I, I guess... Right, he's on a tourist visa yeah. right now, and they're, they're, looking, they're also investigating. But okay. they haven't decided whether to give him asylum yet. And what about this bill that uh, Taiwan is trying to pass? Is it likely to pass? Well, um, the DPP has a majority, so and it's you know, proposed. There's a DPP version, an MPP version. So they're hoping for it to pass this month, this session. Mm-hmm. But um, the KMT is saying this is like a, a campaign strategy, bringing mm-hmm. attention to um, putting Hangul in a bad light, basically. And he says he's going to try to sue the guy right. if he comes if to Taiwan. Right, if he comes to Taiwan. I don't think he's going to come to Taiwan. I or, don't think or so. Or China, that's for yeah. sure. <laughs> All right. Well, very interesting. Thank you so much, Natalie. And that's today's Taiwan Explained. Let's move on now to the Golden Horse Awards, which took place in Taipei this past weekend. Now, these are seen as the Chinese language Oscars. But there was one country that was conspicuously absent this year, and that's China. That's because someone made a pro-Taiwan independence comment on stage at the awards last year. There are fewer stars than usual due to a Chinese boycott of this year's Golden Horse Awards, the Chinese language equivalent of the Oscars. But there was more global interest in the awards as a result. Oscar award-winning director Ang Lee said that the works being celebrated this year were as good as in any other year. He also extended goodwill to all Chinese filmmakers. There were less films this year, and that's regrettable, but our arms are always wide open. We welcome any Chinese-language films and directors. Zhong Menghong's film A Sun was one of the biggest winners at the Golden Horse Awards. The nearly three-hour film depicts a family torn by a crime committed by its youngest son. It won Best Feature Film, Best Director, Best Leading Actor, Best Supporting Male Actor, Best Film Editing, as well as the Audience Choice Award. Director Zhong Menghong said, The most touching aspect of making a film is having the crew by your side the whole way. This support was a powerful force that enabled me to make this movie. Chen Yiwen and Yeo Yin Yin were the night stars, winning Best Leading Actor for A Sun and Best Leading Actress for Wet Season. 
The Taiwanese blockbuster horror film Detention was also a big winner. The film is set during Taiwan's 1960s white terror era and is an adaptation of a horror adventure video game. The film won Best New Director, Best Art Direction, Best Original Film Score, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Visual Effects. While Taiwan was hosting the Golden Horse Awards, China was staging its own competing film awards on the same night, the Golden Rooster Awards. There's an article in the Hollywood magazine Variety which compares the two events. In the article, it says that for those who value creative freedoms, the celebrity wattage at the Golden Roosters was merely a shiny gloss on an event that critics say prioritizes Communist Party-approved messaging over artistic merit. Now, it's a very interesting article. You can read it if you like. We'll have the link for you in the show notes below. In today's Taiwan by Number, we're going to be talking about drones. Now, have either one of you used a drone before? Nope. Ever been shot by a drone mm, before? Luckily, no. Uh, in films, of course. <laughs> oh, shot. I'm like, I want the other I direction. Think that was with that. Movies. <laughs> we once used them for a TV show that I do, and it was very scary. They would come very close and, and whir very loudly. Oh, wow. Fortunately, there will be no actual drones used in today's program. But to start off with, I want to talk to you a little bit about the usage of drones in Taiwan. And since it's election season, it is illegal to use a drone at a campaign rally without prior approval. So keep that in mind if you're at a campaign rally and you want to get some aerial photography. So I'm going to start off with a question for you. And the number that I want you to guess is, what is the maximum fine for using a drone in a restricted area in Taiwan? So it could be at a campaign rally, at an airport. airport. That's a big one. A million NT dollars. A million NT dollars. Or okay. maybe like an airport. Yeah. Oh, that's very airport. dangerous. Oh, that's a good, good guess. Good guess. Taiwan's kind of lenient with fines. I'm going to go fifteen thousand. Fifteen thousand. Big range got there. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to have that answer for you in just a moment. But first, I want to take you down to southern Taiwan for a look at something very interesting that they're doing with drones. This is the southern branch of the National Palace Museum in Jiayi County, southern Taiwan. Just outside the museum, flock drones take flight in the dark of the night, lighting up in formation. Viewers on the ground are treated to familiar images of objects like the treasured jadeite cabbage from the museum's northern branch in Taipei. This is just one of the many things the southern branch is doing to try and attract visitors. Between June 1st and August 31st of this year, the museum offered free admission on weekends and national holidays. Residents of Jiayi can also get in for free. All of these measures seem to be working. This year, the number of visitors to the museum is closing in on the million mark, up from just 760,000 visitors last year. Some lawmakers are worried that all of these promotions are cutting into museum ticket revenue. However, museum officials say that right now, their focus is on getting people through the door. I like the JDAC cabbage. That was cool. Yeah, I like the little smiley face. Little smiley face. <laughs> And it looks like fireworks, except they stay there for longer, which is I know, is and they move cool. so fast. Yeah. Cool. All right, so before uh, the video, I asked you the question, what is the maximum fine for using a drone in a restricted area in Taiwan? Now, Natalie, you said a million Taiwan mm -hmm. dollars. Leslie, you said 15,000 yep. Taiwan dollars. All right, let's have a look at the answer. 
Oh, oh, I was closer. 1.5 million. That's right. That's which a is... lot of money. Well, <laughs> think about it. If you're at an airport and then you're disturbing the airplane coming down. I don't want a drone anymore. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's too risky. It's more expensive than the drone. Yeah, absolutely. So I should say that uh, 1.5 million Taiwan dollars, that's about 50,000 U.S. dollars. The minimum fine is also pretty hefty. It's a lot more than 15,000, Leslie. It is three hundred thousand Taiwan Ooh. dollars. About 10, no playing with US. drones and in unrestricted places. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> stay away from campaign rallies. Stay away from airports. And they're actually developing an app where you can uh, use the app to find out which places are restricted in Taiwan. Now, if there are drones that are being used in a restricted area in Taiwan, authorities have something that they can do. They have some equipment they can use to neutralize the drone. Basically, uh, they detect it first. And then they turn off the GPS, and that either sends the drone back home, or they can land the drone. So my question for you is, how far away can they detect a drone? What's the maximum distance away that they can detect a drone? 10 kilometers. 10 kilometers. <laughs> That's a lot, right? <laughs> I mean, it's too far. <laughs> I want to say 2 kilometers. 2 kilometers. Mm -hmm. OK, those are two excellent guesses. Let's have a look at the answer. 1.5 kilometers, you were very close. Wow, that looks Good like for a you. gun from the Men in Black movie. But movies. that's not very far. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so to end up today's Taiwan by Number, I want to show you some very interesting ways that the authorities are actually using the drones to do some interesting things. Let's have a look at some of these uses. So the first thing is they can spot illegal fires, so people like to burn off their fields. Ooh. Also, uh, they engage in search and uh, rescue missions. They can spot people that are in kind of like cavernous areas That's like great. in the mountains. Then something else that they can do is they can use it for public safety. Uh, so basically, uh, as you can see in this photo, they're doing a spot check on a karaoke bar. Uh, the police are all standing out in front. And you know, if somebody makes a break for it, then they can uh, use the drone to figure out where they've gone. And the last wow, thing is they cool. can use it to observe wildlife, which you can wow. see there are Without disturbing nests. them. Well, That's actually, right. it could disturb them. Well, in this case, you probably want to disturb them. Those are the nests of the sacred ibis, which is an invasive species with no natural predators in Taiwan. So basically, they use the drones to find the nests and then get rid of the eggs so ah. they can protect the, the local wildlife here in Taiwan. All very advanced and very good uses. One other thing they can use it for, they can catch you if you're speeding. So you oh no! <laughs> That's not good! <laughs> for us drivers. <laughs> Both of the drivers in this show are like, uh, oh, I, I drive as well, so yeah. Uh, so finally, say, I just want to tell you, there's going to be a brand new law starting in March of next year, and you're going to have to get a license if you want to use a drone that's over two kilograms in weight or if you want to use a drone at a very crowded public area. So you want to check out all of the different parts of those rules, and we'll have a link for you in the show notes below so you can check that out. All right. Well, thanks, Andrew. And that is Taiwan by Number for this week. Up next, Who in Taiwan? In today's Who in Taiwan, our mystery person is a reluctant diplomat. All right. On buzzer mm. number one, we have Natalie So. Buzzer number two, we have Leslie Dow. We have 60 seconds on the clock. You guys ready? Yes. All right. Our mystery person was born in a military dependence village in Pingdong County, southern Taiwan. This person failed the college entrance examination twice, but would eventually get a theater degree at the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana. 
It is Angley. <laughs> <laughs> I know my Angley, so. <laughs> She's done some extra research uh, on him. All right, so let me give you the rest of the yeah, clues sure, for those sure, of you who sure. are playing along at home. Uh, so he would eventually get a theater degree from Illinois at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, Champaign-Urbana, but he didn't get his first acting credit until 13 years later. Theater, you want to act, mean, he, right? He acted first. He, well, I forgot no. forgot about that. He didn't. That oh. is a bit of a red herring. Oh, okay. I didn't think he did. He did act. Do you know what first movie that he acted in was? No. He was. He played a cameo in his own film, The Wedding oh. Banquet. <laughs> when he's already famous? Oh, yes. no. He's a director then. He was a director. Right, right. And uh, he played a wedding guest in The Wedding oh, Banquet. Okay. Uh, he has been nominated for how many Academy Awards? Three? Five? Oof. Nine. Are you serious? Ooh. Oh, I was thinking director awards. Yes. Well, director awards, he hasn't three, been nominated right. for that many. So how many do you think he's won? Two, right? He's won three awards total if you count uh, the movie. Uh, he won oh, Best okay. Foreign Language awards. Film for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And he won Best Director. In fact, he was the first non-white person to win Best Director. He won it twice. Once for Brokeback Mountain and once for Life of Pi. Wow. And the reason why I called him a reluctant diplomat, did that throw you guys off? Big time. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> You're using was, my trick. <laughs> yes. I was thinking about diplomats. Well, the reason why I called him a reluctant diplomat is because he was the head of the Golden Horse Awards Executive uh -huh. Committee uh, for two of the most difficult years to play that role. One was last year uh, when some political statements were made on stage, as we said earlier in our show today. Uh, and then again this year, because it's a two-year posting. So he's had to be the kind of forward-facing face of the awards and kind of answer questions from the media. And I'll also toe the line. Like, he has to kind of, like, find out, does he want to, like, promote freedom of speech? Or does he want to, like, invite the Chinese film industry to come back? Like, it's, it's drawing a balance. He did a good job. He's very diplomatic. He said that his, the arms are always welcome for Chinese diplomats. And, no, not Chinese diplomats. Chinese movies. <laughs> for yes. Chinese filmmakers <laughs> and movies. And also that he hopes that everyone will respect the arts. And he just made it very open. And, mm. and he, he said he hopes po politics is not a part of all of this, but what can he do? He got into Variety magazine, so that can't be... <laughs> you know, he's the That's best be a good for thing. Taiwan. We all love him. He's a hero here, and uh, I think, I think got, he did a great job. He's, he's definitely... I want to show you another picture of him so you can see him a little bit better. I used a tricky one for the first one. So I can it's hard hardly to tell who it is. <laughs> there were like seven faces in the crowd. Come on, man. <laughs> I have to have some tricks when it's somebody as easy to guess as Ang Lee. So there you go. That is uh, this week's Who in Taiwan. Well, we hope you enjoyed this uh, edition of Taiwan Insider. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Yes, and leave a comment below. We'd love to hear from you for Taiwan Insider. I'm Natalie So. I'm Leslie Leo. And I'm Andrew Ryan. See you next week.
Taiwan Today with Natalie So. Hello and welcome to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. What is the best way to travel? Well, today we may gain some insights from a Taiwanese entrepreneur in England, Helen Chung, the co-founder of Scopers. They help people enjoy a destination just the way they want to. They offer personal guides, walking tours, and planning services. Chang tells me how Scopers got started. Actually, we came up with idea to help ourselves and our friends. Uh, when you study abroad or you work abroad, sometimes your friends or family visit you. Um, but sometimes they assume you understand everything. <laughs> but that's not that's not really true because you live there, but you don't really study history or you don't do a tour guide there. Um, so sometimes my friend told me, well, we are very stressful. My friend coming to UK and visit me for around one or two weeks, but I don't know how to guide them, how to plan a perfect journey for my family. So we thought actually there is a kind of a gap. So we started to do a planning service in the beginning. Uh, in the very beginning, we just had a planning service. Of course, now we develop more and more product. So what do you mean mm-hmm. by a planning service? Helping people plan their their trips? Yes, it's just very simple planning so like uh, you got every detail of for example transport attractions and your hotels but i find it's not actually people really want so we started to do walking tours and private guides and like day trip you discover there's a market for this yes most people from taiwan what do they like to see when they go to England? Mm-hmm. So our customers are actually very independent. <laughs> of course, they want to go to, for example, Buckingham Palace, Big Band, and British Museum for the general sightseeing. But they also want to discover something a little bit more, a little bit uh, deeper. Uh, we develop walking tours like Harry Potter walking tours oh, in Chinese. <laughs> and we got street art walking tour in Chinese, which is the, our exclusive product in London. Mm. Um, so young people really like it. What about street art? Tell me about this tour. Street art. Oh, so actually it's my tour <laughs> <laughs> in East End, you know, Brooklyn. So in that area, there are lots of street artists painting on the wall, their graffiti. And the graffiti actually reflect the local environment, the culture, the religions, and even the politics statues. Um, so I would say it's quite unique in Britain because it was like a little bit lower classic area before, but now it was regenerated and it's more like a border in Kaohsiung mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, or Huashan in Taipei. Mm-hmm. So it will be very developed and unique artist space. Oh, mm-hmm. and so usually there are not tours to these places. Uh, there are some, only in English or Spanish. Oh, I see. So mm-hmm. you're the only one in Chinese. Yes. <laughs> Interesting. So tell me, what are the kinds of ways that people like to travel? People from Taiwan and China, too. Do you also cater to people from China? Sure. So not what that many, but some. Not as many? Oh, okay. <laughs> Uh, what are the ways that people like to travel these days? What kind of trends do you see? I find people are not satisfied with group travel mm-hmm. as we did before. Right, it's a little bit stifling because yes. you don't have much space to breathe and do what you want to do, right? <laughs> sure, that's exactly <laughs> right. And we find 
our main customer are small family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they are between um, 30 or 40 and they got their elderly family or they got very, very young children. So they're not able to join a big group like how we a did before. A big tour, traditional tours. Yes, for a sightseeing tour. And they want the car or the tour guide can pick them up at a hotel mm. and just do a very customized, very private tool which fits their need. For instance, some of my customers actually told me they don't want to listen to any history stories. They just <laughs> want to go shopping. <laughs> so I will assign a private guy who works in Harrods. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, and then just <laughs> fit their needs and and they probably they can get free coffee or something. <laughs> okay. Well that makes them feel special, right? Like yeah. they have a, a- a personal guide in the city to take them to do whatever they want to do. Yes, uh, our philosophy is actually less no must see uh. other than the place you need to be. So for me, the places you want to see is your must see, not mm-hmm. everyone's must see. Hmm. Mm. That's good because sometimes people get very anxious about what they need to see if they're only in a city for one or two days, right? Mm-hmm. They feel like, oh, I missed this attraction and oh, am I making the most of my time there? Well, what kind of suggestions do you have for travelers to make the most of a destination? I would say do some research, of course. (laughs) And you actually can find a local guide like us or um, a local driver guide who live in Britain, for example, for 10 years or for five five years. And you can actually communicate with them in advance, saying, oh, actually, I, I want to see a historical attraction, mainly historical attraction, or I want to try a special British food. I, I would say this kind of communica- communication helps us a lot to understand your profile and kind of planning in advance. And sometimes we can give you more because we got um, plenty of inter- information you provide. So in terms of suggestion, uh, I'm not sure if I answer your question. <laughs> oh, well, um, I'm curious, what do people in Taiwan like to do? What kind of trends do you see with them in terms of what they like to see in the UK and the way they like to travel? The way they like to travel? Uh, I would say in the past, our travel is more like a package. For example, we we got a bando. <laughs> and um, they just buy a whole package. You cannot ch- You cannot choose what kind of dish inside it. Um, but now I think people want to choose every element by themselves. Do some research, but also tell your local guy, your local supplier, let them know what you think, what you really want to know. And of course, there are still some people still just want to join the lo- um, the big tool, yeah, the big group, and they don't mm, really think it's necessary to think too much. Our customer segment are a little bit different. Oh, that's mm. interesting. Well, what do you think are, is the most interesting way to see, let's say, um, England? Is it mostly London that you you cover? I mean, location. Yeah, whatever. What are the most with the most interesting way to see? Yeah, I would say there are a lot to discover in England. Well, in Britain, uh, so you can see a very modern, very fancy restaurant attraction in London. But um, after one hour journey, you can see, uh, for example, Cotswold area, Cambridge, Oxford, even Brighton. The seat calls are just brilliant and even you can travel to Scotland Scotland or Northern Ireland there are lots of natural 
attractions are some of them are protected so you can actually explore the wild life in Britain yeah just in, in one week for me that's the most attractive part in Britain hmm. do you see a difference between tourists from Taiwan and China in the way that they, they approach travel uh yeah kind of actually yeah what, what's the difference <laughs> So I would say let's let's just by assumption probably the Taiwanese people just travel a lot since um in past um I don't know three or four decades. So people already been to London a few times. Um, sometimes they come back for a deeper travel, the deeper journey. But I also got some Chinese case before, and they probably it was their first time in Britain. So we still did some very general sightseeing. But I would say there are so many different customer segments. Um, for my Chinese customer, some of them still want to have an in-depth walking tour, like our street art tour actually sells well. <laughs> so yeah, I would say it doesn't matter your nationality or where you come from. Uh, for me, the biggest difference is your age and your interest. Hmm. especially the age. The young people actually prefer our walking tools and people over 40 or 50 prefer our day trip and private guide. Oh, mm -hmm. interesting. So how easy is it for you as an entrepreneur to start a company in, in a foreign country? Oh, it's not easy. Not easy, right. Tell, <laughs> not me, easy some, <laughs> some, tell me some of the, um, the challenges and, and the achievements that mm -hmm. you've made. Okay. Um, first of all, we are not um, the local British. So sometimes we, f uh, I find it a little bit hard to find the resources. Oh, but I am very lucky. I actually graduated from Kingston University. They are very supportive for entrepreneurs. We, we have the entrepreneur program and we studied design thinking. Mm, so we know how to design our product or service based on cost customers' feedback. I wouldn't say foreign entrepreneurs like us <laughs> face bigger challenge than the British, but indeed we have to face the problem of, for example, visa. Mm. Mm. That's probably the main issue for most of the entrepreneurs coming from um, overseas. So how are you able to stay in there? In the country, uh, my visa called Tier One Graduate Entrepreneur. Oh, so there is an entrepreneur visa. Yes, but this this kind of visa actually is uh, is sponsored by my university. You have to be interviewed. You have to do presentation, and finally they choose ten or fifteen people just to give a support, give you the visa. So was this your plan all along? To be an entrepreneur when you were studying there? Were you, or were you planning to return to Taiwan right after school? Um, one of my friends, who is another co-founder, invited me to join the team. And she came up with this idea in the beginning. And we kind of processed it. And we did more market research after I joined it. Both of them faced the same problem when we were students. The problem I told you. So... We design our product, our service, based on our experiences and our survey. And we just think, okay, probably it works. Then we started. Hmm. We and didn't think that much, to be so honest. Just gave it a try, right? gave it a shot. Yeah, yeah. And after you launch your business, you have to change it from time to time anyway to just try to see if it fits your market or not. Mm -hmm. So yeah, just do and try. So how do you market to people in Taiwan? must be through the internet, right? Is it? Yes. 
all our customers come from internet, some from our partner in Britain or in Taiwan, but I would say 90% of our customers come from internet. So we ex actually did a lot on SEO and Facebook, the content marketing. So we provide some useful content, for instance, um, the way to transport in London mm. or the must-eat attraction or the must-eat restaurant or some tips we give. So when people Google it, you can easily find what you really need. And you know we are professional in Britain. So you might be interested in this. So how's business so far? It's, uh, it's all right. It's pretty good. It's all right. Yeah. I would say pretty good. We still have room to improve. But yeah, we are, we are running it. Uh -huh. And what is your vision? For the company? Vision. Mm -hmm. I hope when people think about traveling in Britain, the first word come to their mind is scopers. Scopers. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if you're a Chinese language traveler, mm -hmm. you can check out scopers. And um, do you have any nice tips for travelers in general? Before we end nice the show, nice tips. Uh, yeah. Uh, so in Taiwan, most of our attractions actually the opening hour are, are fixed. It doesn't really change. It depends on the season. But in Britain, uh, sometimes in winter, for example, opening time could be much shorter than in summer. Oh, so we have to pay attention to opening hours. Yes, and also get some coins with you because toilets are not free. <laughs> Oh, that's right. England yeah, just very, very different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, anything you want to tell the travelers of the world, how to enjoy their trips? Yeah, just as our slogan, <laughs> I would say there's no must see. So do some research and tell people what you need, what you want. And if you are comfortable with speaking English, uh, I would say just talk to the local people. Sometimes you get more. Sometimes they tell you, oh, there's a bar I really, really like to go. I go every day. So you just enjoy a very local experience. Well, Helen Chang, it's very uh, nice speaking with you. It's great to see uh, that you're a thriving entrepreneur in England. So best of wishes for your business, Thank Scopers. You. you might want to check it out if you're going to England and you need a personal Taiwanese guide. Thanks for tuning in to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. John Van Trieste and the destination Taipei, February 27th, 1947. February 28th, 228 is a date that haunts Taiwan's past. On this date 70 years ago, a seething public anger at the government exploded into the open. The government responded with a devastating rampage. The exact death toll remains unknown, but the number is in the tens of thousands. 
Amid the hysteria, many more simply disappeared, held in undisclosed locations. Though the violence is commonly known as the 228 incident in Taiwan, there are those who have another name for it, the 228 massacre. By the time the killing and the abduction subsided, a generation had been thoroughly shaken. Through the decades of martial law that followed, 228 became Taiwan's unspeakable secret. Writer Yang Zhenlong is deeply familiar with the silent suffering the violence left behind. Though his family alone had three victims, no one breathed a word about what had happened until well after he'd become an adult. No one, not even his father, who survived. Today, he is executive director of the Memorial Foundation of 228, an organization that works to secure justice and uncover the truth behind the massacre. This week, he'll be talking with us about the events of 1947, a story his generation grew up knowing nothing about. Then next week, he'll be back with us again to tell us about the wounds that remain, the progress that has been made to address them, and what still has to be done. The 228 massacre happened during a period of big transitions for Taiwan. For 50 years, the island had been a Japanese colony. There had been pressure to assimilate to Japanese ways, and finally, coercion to fight for Japan in World War II. Japan's defeat at the end of the war brought an end to this colonial rule. The Allies had decided that Taiwan would be given to the Republic of China, and in 1945, it was. After 50 years, Taiwan's rulers, like most of the people who lived on the island, would be ethnic Chinese once again. Mr. Yang says that at first, Taiwan had high hopes about the handover. They were soon dashed. He says that over 50 years of Japanese rule, Taiwan had moved in its own direction. The attitude of government officials, all of them brought in from outside Taiwan, only deepened the divide. He says that power and resources were kept away from local Taiwanese and concentrated in the hands of new arrivals like these from across the Taiwan Strait. The new people in charge looked down on Taiwan's people and treated them with disrespect. Suddenly, the old Japanese colonial rule didn't seem half bad. Add to that a stew of other problems, including economic troubles and indiscipline among soldiers, and the stage was set for a showdown. The grievances festered for over a year, until February 27, 1947, the day a spark was lit that set off the entire powder keg. It began outside the Tianma Tea House in Taipei, where agents of the government monopoly bureau had managed to corner an illegal cigarette vendor. The government had a strict monopoly on tobacco, but the black market was a lifeline for many people, a way to survive the difficult times. That didn't matter to the agents. The woman was beaten. Bystanders noticed, and they got angry. In the confrontation that followed, one of the agents fired a shot that fatally wounded a bystander. It wasn't long until the whole of Taipei knew what had happened. A wave of protest began, and it spread. 
The following day, after attacking the Monopoly Bureau, protesters massed in front of the provincial executive office. Shots were fired indiscriminately into the crowd, killing several and adding more fuel to public fury. Soon, the anger had spread beyond Taipei. Through radio broadcasts, through word of mouth, through any means possible, the protesters told the rest of the island about what had happened in Taipei. They told anyone who would listen to rise up. People responded to the call, and fighting broke out in different areas. It wasn't just the people versus the government, either. The eruption of tensions between local people and new Chinese arrivals led to even more violence. Both groups suffered. Something had to be done, and a committee was set up with the stated goal of resolving the situation. In the beginning, Mr. Yang says, people had only had one demand, hand over those responsible for the killings. But the events of the past few days had by now tapped deep into a roiling anger that had built up over more than a year. Soon, other demands were brought up. Reform, change. Eventually, the list of demands brought up reached 32. But this was not a government that did reform or change. Still, officials were in a bind. They understood that there weren't enough troops on Taiwan at the time to put down this wave of anger. So, the government stalled. Mr. Yang says it pretended to listen to the people's concerns and acted as though the petitions they sent mattered. The ruse continued until enough troops could be diverted to the island. When they landed on March 8th, the game was up. Soldiers tore through swaths of the island, killing and looting along the way. Arrests and disappearances could also come at any time. Mr. Yang says that some of the terror was random and unplanned. Some of it, though, was systematic. Taiwan's local-born elite were among the targets. That meant Mr. Yang's family. His grandfather was a city councillor in Keelung, the northern port city near Taipei where the family lived. Mr. Yang's father was a doctor, and one of his uncles was an elementary school teacher. Teaching, medicine, politics, all good targets as far as the government was concerned. Mr. Yang's grandfather went missing. There was no trace of him for around three months. He was only released after writing a confession for some imagined crime. As a doctor, Mr. Yang's father was seen as an even more valuable target. He was arrested three times in a row, first by the military, then by the police, and finally by the military police. Each time, he was held for what was essentially a ransom. The amount demanded was enormous, but Mr. Yang says the family paid out each time for his father's release. His uncle was simply tied to a stone slab with two others and thrown into Keelung Harbor. These events were never spoken about again in the family home. 
Mr. Young grew up in the post-228 world, where many things were not discussed. The years after 228 were especially dangerous. The Chinese Civil War had ended in defeat for the government, and it had lost everything but Taiwan and some other smaller islands. Chinese refugees were fleeing to Taiwan in large numbers, martial law was declared, and in the paranoia of these years, alleged communists and enemies of the state were rounded up and killed. A new era of horrors, the White Terror Period, had begun. With fear of the government high, and the weight of the trauma still heavy on his family, Mr. Yang grew up unaware of anything. As he puts it, growing up, 228 was only ever a number. Next week, we'll find out how Mr. Yang finally learned about his family's suffering, and how he came to be involved in the quest for justice. We'll also hear his critique of how work to set the historical record straight has been handled and will get his views on what Taiwan can learn from the healing process that other countries have been through. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me then. This is Taiwan Explained, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. Today's Taiwan Explained, I'm going to tell you about self-proclaimed former Chinese spy Wang Li Chang, who made headlines this week. All right, Natalie, we have 60 seconds on the clock. I'm ready. You ready? Yes. Go. All right, this past week, Wang Li Chang has been featured on major Australian media. He says he's a former Chinese spy who is working to undermine democracy in Hong Kong and Taiwan. He says that in 2014, he began working for this Hong Kong-based company, which was a front for Chinese intelligence activities. He says he helped with the high-profile kidnapping of a Hong Kong bookseller at the shop selling dissident books. Wang says he was also sent to Taiwan to work with media, temples, and a cyber army to help get Han Guri elected as Kaohsiung mayor in 2018. That went so well that his next mission was to come back and to help prevent President Tsai Ing-wen from getting re-elected. But instead, Wang went to Australia to be with his family and to seek political asylum. But China has a different story. Chinese authorities say Wang is a fraudster and a fugitive with a fake passport. They say he was convicted of fraud and accused of conning a person out of 4.6 million RMB, but also... Oh! Very nearly. (laughs) You have one more sentence, right? Yes. Um... (laughs) Well, this is his conviction record, and some people say it only appeared online after the media reports came out. All righty. So So how seriously are people taking this case? Well, they are taking it quite seriously. Uh, Taiwan is investigating um, the claims, and they actually um, held two people, the people in charge of that company, um, for questioning this past week for two days. They're released, but they're banned from leaving Taiwan. So I guess the ball is now in Australia's court to decide whether they're going to send him back or to accept him as, uh, I, I guess... Right, he's on a tourist yeah. visa right now, and they're, they're, looking, they're also investigating. Okay. They haven't decided whether to give him asylum yet. And what about this bill that uh, Taiwan is trying to pass? Is it likely to pass? Well, um, the DPP has a majority, so and it's you know, proposed. There's a DPP version, an NPP version. 
So they're hoping for it to pass this month, the session. Mm -hmm. But um, the KMT is saying this is like a, a campaign strategy, bringing mm -hmm. attention to um, putting Hanguri in a bad light, basically. And he says he's going to try to sue the guy right. if he comes if to he Taiwan. Right, if he comes to Taiwan. I don't think he's going to come to Taiwan. I don't or, think or so. China, that's for yeah. sure. <laughs> All right, well, very interesting. Thank you yes. so much, Natalie. And that's today's Taiwan Explained. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.